Welcome to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. This week, I sit down with anthropologist, futurist, Intel Fellow, and Director of Interaction and Experience Research at Intel, Genevieve Bell. We talk about what she's learning from current AI research, why the resurgence of AI is different this time, and five things that are missing from the AI conversation. Enjoy the show. Thank you for joining me today, Genevieve. Oh, it's always my pleasure. So let's start with a bit about your background. Your education background is in anthropology. How did your path lead you to working in technological areas like AI? Oh, well, it's always that embarrassing story, right? How did you get from being an anthropologist at Stanford to Intel? And because I'm Australian and me, it does involve a man in a bar in Palo Alto in the late 1990s. (laughs) Don't ask me for career advice. (laughs) But, you know, since I've been at Intel, I mean, I've been there for a long time. And my job's really evolved into this kind of constant evaluation of the the sort of intersections between humans and technology. So, you know, over the years, I'm always sort of fascinated. What's the latest sort of expression of that? And how is that playing out? And where are there places that there's effectively tension on the system, right? Where it almost feels like there are these questions about technology versus humans, not technology and humans. And for me, artificial intelligence is kind of the next place that we are arguing about our humanity and about the relationship between technology and culture. So for me, it's sort of fascinating, but it fits into a a much longer genealogy, right? We were having these conversations about big data three years ago, and before that, we were having them about the internet and the web and mobile apps and mobile phones. And I think, you know, for me, it's interesting in that lineage as well as in and of itself. And can you talk a little bit about the research you're doing in AI right now and what you're learning? Sure. So for me, I, it's sort of at the moment, my kind of preoccupations tend to be twofold. One is I think it's really important to give these technologies a history. So where do they come from? Because I think, you know, sometimes the way we talk about them, it's like, hey, I just turned up one day. Here it is, fully fledged and happily all fleshed out. And the reality is, of course, we've been talking about artificial intelligence for a long time, at least since 1956 in its current form. But arguably, you know, humans' preoccupations about reproducing themselves mm. in, a, in an asexual manner, <laughs> you know, a long standing. And so I've sort of Partly it's for me is like how do you build out that genealogy and start to kind of give it a larger both historical and cultural context. And I think the second thing is, you know, what are the current manifestations of AI and how do we think about those? And I've not yet gotten to the point of doing fieldwork with AI. I struggle to imagine what that would look like, although that's a good struggle to have. I mean, I think there's a, an, a, an obvious piece of work to go to do with the people who are making making, quote unquote, making AI in the kind of, you know, classic ethnographic sense. I think there's a piece about how do we start to unpack those black boxes of algorithms, which is not work I'm qualified to do. It's not my background, but I'm interested in the people who are doing that work too, right? So when I think, you know, for me, it's sort of all of those pieces and how they sit together. Right. And so you noted that you hadn't done any field research in that area yet, but what kinds of behaviors are you observing? Oh, well, that's a, an easier answer. Um, I think in some ways, part of for me, the reason of wanting to put AI into a lineage is many of the ways we respond to it as human beings are remarkably familiar. Um, I think, you know, I'm sure you and many of your viewers and listeners know about the Gartner hype curve, the notion of, you know, there's at first it's a, we don't talk about it very much, then there is the, you know, the arc of it's everywhere. And then we sort of go through the, the valley of it not being so spectacular until it kind of stabilizes. I think most humans respond to technology not dissimilarly. There's this moment where you go, wow, that's amazing. Probably followed by the, uh-oh, is it going to kill us? <laughs> Probably followed by the, huh, is that all it does? <laughs> so sort of the, wow, ah, mm, sort of curve, right, of, of human existence. And I think AI is in the middle of that, right? It's in the middle of it at the moment, you know, if you were to read the tech press, the trade presses and sort of follow the broader news, AI is simultaneously the answer to everything. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to provide us with safer cars, safer roads, better weather predictions. It's going to be a way of managing complex data in simple manners. It's going to beat us at chess. You know, it's sort of on the one hand, it's all of that goodness. And then on the other hand, there are being raised both the kind of traditional fears of technology. Is it going to kill us? Will it be safe? What does it mean to have autonomous things? What are they going to do to us? And then the reasonable questions about what models are we using to build this technology out? And so when you look across the kind of ways it's being talked about, there are those three different kind of vectors, right? One of a kind of oh, excessive optimism, one of a kind of deep dystopian fear, and then another starting to run a critique of the decisions that are being made around it. And I think, you know, that's in some ways a very familiar set of positions about a new technology. Right. And so from a cultural and behavior perspective, um, you noted the the hype curve, but where would you say from that perspective we are with AI right now? And where do you see it going? What kinds of changes do you expect to see in, in like, let's say, 10 years, kind of yeah. the shorter term? So I, mean, I think the most interesting thing in some ways about AI, and certainly for people who are closer to its history than I am, is that it's been a core celeb a couple of times in, in its lifetime just since 1956. Mm-hmm. When, you know, when AI was coined and arrived in that you know, kind of remarkable conference at Dartmouth in 1956, it was all a bit like, wow, so many things. And technology had really moved at that moment where it did seem like a whole lot of new things were possible that just hadn't been possible before. And AI went through this incredible efflorescence where it was you know, sort of the place that everyone went and the money went and the smart people went. And then it went through, well, two winters, people talk about you know, the dark winters of AI where it became clear that it wasn't going to solve everything quite as quickly as people imagined. The technology didn't do what people hoped. The funding moved elsewhere. We had a second resurgence, you know, about 20 years ago. And I think it's in its third wave now. So it's a sort of interesting thing that says, could you plot it on the hype curve? Kind of, but it's sort of, it's gone up the, the, the slope a couple mm-hmm. of times and sort of slid back down again. So I think one of the things that's interesting about it is what brings it back to the fore again and what's different now would be questions I w- would want to ask. And then I think, you know, the second piece of what does the next decade look like? I think in some ways the next decade is a, I mean, it's always the easy answer, right? It's complicated. Uh, You know, we have places that AI is clearly capturing the imagination, so autonomous vehicles. But we have places where AI, like objects, bots, algorithms, are already functioning Mm -hmm. um, that we are less critical of. So, you know, whether it is Amazon's recommendation engines, whether it is the matching algorithms sitting inside any dating website, whether it's things like sentencing guideline technologies. I mean, there's lots of places where early instantiations of AI are already happening. And I think we sometimes forget that we could ask questions about that too. We get a little mesmerized by the self-driving cars as opposed to saying, what are all the other places we might want to go ask questions about what this world is going to feel like? And do you think it's different this time? Um, Yeah, I do. I mean, I think in no small part where one of the challenges up until now had been both the availability and sort of capacity of the technology. So we're at a point when the kind of the sheer sort of horsepower of the technology is like nothing that has been before. We're also at a point where there is an inordinate amount of data that is digital that was simply not the case before. So imagining training objects on data sets is much easier now. And I once heard Andrew Ng, who is now the CTO of Baidu, but he was at Stanford in these days, talking about having to buy up coffee cups across the entire of the Bay Area in order to have a photo database of coffee cups big enough to train a, you know, a machine learning algorithm on. And he said that you know he spent six months buying up coffee cups in secondhand shops across the peninsula. By the time he was done, he had a thousand coffee cups and a thousand pictures of coffee cups. And that seems like an insane story now because you could go to Instagram or Flickr or just the internet and there would be a lot of pictures of coffee cups. But when he started, he had to manually create them himself. 
So I sort of think about it, and that's a decade ago, right? Right. That, you know, there is now this incredible troves of data that we can train machinery on and train algorithms on that just didn't exist before. So I think that kind of combination of the increasing digitization of data sets, a kind of powerful set of compute engines sitting underneath of it, moves the conversation forward in ways that just hadn't been possible before, and the technology too. Right. And so looking longer term, how do you envision the future of the human-machine relationship? I always think the human-machine interface is a contested one. It has been so ever since there were any machinery that was external to ourselves, right? You know, humans have a, an ambivalence about machinery, right? We like to augment our bodies and ourselves and our kind of social standing, but we also worry about being eclipsed. And I think those ambivalences don't go away here. In some ways, they're magnified. But I also think, you know, there are critical challenges. Tim was talking about some of them earlier today on your main stage about you know, whose worldviews are we magnifying? What problems are we choosing to solve and what problems are we ignoring? What are the ways we might want to apply this technology and how do we ask hard questions about it? I mean, you know, if you look at the history of multiple generations of prior technologies, we know that they have reinscribed structural inequalities, right? You know, technologies didn't necessarily uh, make our cities safer. They didn't necessarily emancipate women from domestic labor. They didn't necessarily keep children safe or end poverty, race inequality, mm-hmm. sexual harassment. I mean, you can kind of go down a long list that suggests that each new wave of technology has not rendered cultural and social inequities invisible or ended. So, I mean, I sort of sometimes worry that we imagine that this new, each generation of new technology will somehow mysteriously and magically fix all of our problems. And the reality is, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, we will still be worrying about the safety of our families and our kids, worrying about the integrity of our communities, wanting a good story to keep us company, you know, worrying about how we look and how we sound. <laughs> and, you know, being concerned about the institutions in our existence. Because those are human preoccupations that are thousands of years deep. I'm not sure they change this quickly. But I do think there are kind of harder questions about what that world will be like and what it means to have the possibility of machinery that is much more embedded in our lives and our worlds and about what that feels like. Um, Sort of in the fields that I come out of, we've talked a lot since really about the same time as AI about human-computer interactions, and they really sat inside the same paradigm, right? One about what you would call a command and control infrastructure. You give a command to the technology, you get some sort of piece of answer back. And, you know, whether that's, you know, old command prompt lines or Google search boxes, I mean, it is effectively the same thing. But starting to imagine a generation of technology that is a little more anticipatory, a little more proactive, that's living with us. You can see the first generation of those, whether that's Amazon's Echo, some of the early kind of voice personal assistants. There's a new class of intelligent agents that are coming. And I wonder sometimes if we move from a world of human-computer interactions to a world of human-computer relationships, and we have to start thinking differently. And, you know, what does it mean to imagine technology that is nurturing Mm -hmm. or that has a care or that wants you to be happy, not just efficient, or that wants you to be exposed to transformative ideas would be very different than, you know, the app that finds you your next cup of coffee. Right, right. And what would you say is missing from the AI conversation today? The usual things I think are missing from many conversations about technology. One is an awareness of history. So I think, you know, like I said, AI doesn't come out of nowhere. It came out of a very particular set of preoccupations and concerns in the 1950s and a very particular set of conversations. And we have in some ways erased that history such that we forget how it came to be. So for me, I think a sense of history is missing. As a result of that, I think a kind of 
a more attention to a robust interdisciplinarity is missing too. I think if we're talking about a technology that is as potentially pervasive as this one and as potentially close to us as human beings, I want more philosophers and psychologists and poets and artists and politicians and anthropologists and social scientists and critic, critics of art, you know, I want them all in that conversation because I think they're all part of it, right? It's sort of, I worry that this just becomes a conversation of technologists to each other about speeds and feeds and just that their latest instantiation as opposed to saying, if we really are imagining a form of an object that will be in dialogue with us and supplemental and replacing in us in some places, I want more people in that conversation. So that'd be the second thing that I think is missing. And then I think, you know, it's emerging and I hear it in people like Julia Ang and, you know, my colleagues Kate Crawford and, you know, uh, Meredith Whitaker, an emerging kind of critique of it. So how do you critique an algorithm? Mm -hmm. How do you start to unpack a black boxed algorithm to ask the questions about what pieces of data are they weighting against what and why? And, you know, how do we have the kind of dialogue that says, sure, we can talk about the underlying machinery, but we also need to talk about what's going into those algorithms and what does it mean to train objects? And for me, there's then the kind of the fourth thing, which is, where is theory in all of this? Not game theory, not, you know, theories about machine learning and kind of sequencing and logical decision making, but theories about human beings, theories about how certain kinds of subjectivities are made. I was really struck in reading many of the histories of AI, but also of the contemporary work of how much we make of kind of normative examples in machine learning and in training, where you're trying to work out, you know, what's the, the, rep, the repetition, right? What's the normal thing? So we should just keep doing it. And I realized that sitting inside, those are always judgments about what is normal and what isn't. And, you know, you and I are both women. We know that routinely women are not normal inside those, those engines, right? So there's sort of something about what would it mean to start asking a set of theoretical questions that come out of feminist theory, out of Marxist theory, out of queer theory, critical race theory, about what does it mean to imagine normal here and what is and what isn't. And, you know, machine learning people would recognize this as the question of how do you deal with the outliers? But I think my theory would be what if we started with the outliers rather than the center and where would that get you? And then I think the fifth thing that's missing is this piece about what are the other ways into this conversation that might change our thinking? So as anthropologists, one of the things we're always really interested in is can we give you that kind of that moment where we defamiliarize something. So how do you take a thing you think you know and kind of turn it on its head so you go, I don't recognize that anymore. And for me, that's often about how do you give it a history. But increasingly, I realize in this space, there's also a question to ask about what other things have we tried to machine learn on? So like what other things have we tried to use natural language processing, reasoning, induction to kind of make into supplemental humans or into things that did tasks for us? And of course, there's a whole category of animals we've trained that way. So carrier pigeons, sheepdogs bomb-sniffing dogs, you know, Coco, the, the kind of the monkey who can sign. There's a whole kind of category of those. And I wonder if there's a way of approaching that topic that gets us to think differently about learning, because that's sitting underneath all of this too. So all of those things are missing. But, you know, when you've got that many things missing, that's actually good. It means there's lots of room for good conversations. Right, right. And so shifting a little more broadly, in the last year, what would you say you've learned that has surprised you? Skinner. Skinner, Skinner, Skinner. I know that sounds like you're like, really? What the hell is wrong with you? Who, who was surprised by Skinner? Me, it turns out. Um, so I didn't know a lot about the history of AI. I know a tremendous amount about the history of robots, the history of electricity, the history of other computational technology. But AI was kind of a field that I hadn't really spent a lot of time reading through or talking to people about. And when you go back and you look at the participants in that 1956 conference and in the kind of the, the, the men who mostly drove it forward after that, they were heavily influenced by behaviorists, which is, you know, a branch of psychology that's sort of distinctly American in many ways that sort of comes up in the in between the wars and in the post-war period 
where there's this kind of notion that you can measure human beings and you can use scientific measurements to measure our bodies and our responses. And, you know, first with Pavlov and then Skinner, there was this kind of notion that human beings were a bundle of inputs and stimuli and you know, the stimuli and our response. And that if you could measure all of that, you could measure what stimuli were more effective. So think of, you know, Pavlov and the salivating dogs. Mm-hmm. You know, Skinner had other kind of notions about how you measured humanness. And he, you know, firmly believed that it, you know, our humanity didn't exist as an abstract thing. It existed as a series of basically inputs and outputs, stimuli and response. And if you just take that at face value, it's really useful. If you want to teach a machine to be like a human, that is a great model. I and mean, it's fabulous, right? Because Skinner himself was influenced by mechanization and the Industrial Revolution, all that stuff, right? You know, Taylorism at all. Um, so it must have been really comforting. It's like a, it's an excellent feedback loop. It's like, oh, we want to build a machine. Oh, we have someone who theorizes that people are like machines. Yay, happiness all around. <laughs> but there's this bit where you want to go, Skinner? Really? Oh, my God. Like, there is a theorist who was not without both his own history, so what's he writing against, and, you know, who is he differentiating himself from? Well, Freud and Jung would be pretty obvious people, and then a few others too. And, you know, are there schools of criticism post-Skinner? Absolutely. So for me, I think in some ways the most surprising thing was realizing that lurking underneath all of this AI and machine learning is a set of theories about humanness that are themselves contested territory. But because it's such a long time ago and we don't talk about those histories, we've forgotten that there's any contestation there. And so for me, there's a piece that says, one of the challenges we have with technologies and infrastructures is we always behave like, A, they appear from nowhere, and B, they're totally neutral, and they're just predicated on truth. And for me, there's this bit where you want to start dismantling it and saying, what's sitting underneath there? And if what's sitting underneath of there is Skinner and behavioral sort of notions of the human being, there's work to do there. And there's also opportunity. So I think the thing that surprised me most, yeah, was Skinner. <laughs> and it's kind of related to that. When you research for your own personal interests, what kinds of things do you look at and what papers or interesting studies would you point people to? Oh, I am. <laughs> you follow me on Twitter, you know I just read. Pretty much it's unclear that I sleep, I just read books. Read books and drink coffee and go to the office. Um, I read voraciously. And I think, you know, for me, one of the real pleasures is reading beyond the sort of the short articles, right? I'm actually really interested in the history of intellectual thought. I'm interested in how we came to be, who we are, both as human beings, but as people living in a particular moment in time. So I tend to read a couple of different spaces, right? I'm always reading about the histories of technologies and, you know, people who write a good history of technology, they're hard to come by, but when you find them, they're fabulous. Um, It's a book called The Age of Wonder, which I've just finished, which is lovely about um, the kind of period from Joseph Banks and Voyages of Captain Cook through to Darwin as this kind of period where our scientific minds were fundamentally changed by new forms of experimentation. So that sort of stuff makes me really happy. So there's usually a pile of books in my house. Every table is covered with a pile of things. Um, So I tend to read histories of science and technology. I tend to read cultural studies accounts of things. You know, I try and read a little bit of theory, although it's hard, but I want to go back and read that stuff, right? So when I was working on boredom a few years ago, I went and reread Heidegger, which nearly killed me because he was one of the original theorists theorizing that stuff, right? So at the moment, I find myself back reading some of the early well, stuff out of actually ancient Rome about ideas about learning the Socratic method, all that sort of stuff. So I tend to think you have to read everything. I think it's not just a matter of finding the most recent book on the history of AI and hoping that that does it for you. I I like to read a bit of everything, which also means, truthfully, I'm thinking about what are the cultural productions of that stuff too. So when I was first started all the work on robots about three years ago, I set myself the task of watching every movie there had been a robot in. (laughs) 
which was really quite something. And, you know, led me to such, you know, great classics as Westworld with, um, oh, God, what, uh, the, oh, the one with the bald head. Um, plays a cowboy. I can't think of his name suddenly. And they're remaking it on HBO or Showtime, which will be very odd. Um, but, you know, I went back and looked at every movie that ever had a robot in it, which coincidentally are most of the movies that also have AI in it, which mm. means you, know, you have to think about how, as you know, one of the originals, you know, uh, Space Odyssey, all the way through to Spike Jones's her as this kind right. of manifestations of what do artificial, you know, engines look like and, you know, what will that be? And, of course, it's interesting because Hal is one of the last times they were male. Mm. You know, well, that means they've become female since then. There's something in all of that. And, you know, means that I inexplicably on a long plane flight recently watched a whole lot of movies where there were drones in every single one of them and I realized that you know most of the ways many human beings will first encounter drones was through Hollywood manifestations of them which is in itself interesting all of which is to say I'm like a magpie many things always (laughs) into my brain (laughs) and hopefully something useful comes out not always and so to close our conversation today who and or what are you finding inspiring today I was really delighted in the most positive sense of that word when the White House kicked off this initiative to sort of look at AI and to open it up as a critical area. And I got to attend the last one of those conversations in New York uh, in July that my colleague Kate Crawford at Microsoft Research and Meredith Whitaker at Google were kind of constituting and curating, which is about kind of what does it mean to talk about AI right now? And how do we think about AI as a kind of a, a social and cultural formation, not just a technical one? And I think then looking at what ProPublica was doing, looking at, you know, in sort of starting to critique algorithms and actually doing the sort of brute force hard work of working out what's inside the algorithm. And, you know, people who were starting to think through, like, you know, Helen Nisbaum at NYU about different ideas about notions of data subjectivity. How do we think about the war here? What does it mean to imagine how that data lives and breathes and where it goes and who has access to it and, you know, whether the law can keep up with all of those things. Those are the bits that inspire me is the people who are asking not just the technical questions, but the social, cultural, legal, regulatory, and ultimately the human questions because we're going to live inside this world. I want to imagine we get to have a more active part in making it. So for me, that's all the stuff that's inspiring. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Genevieve. This has been fascinating. It's my total pleasure. You can find me on Twitter at Jen Webb and Genevieve at Feral Data. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.